want to encourage you to pull out your note sheets if you got them, open up your Bibles. Uh, we got some new light bulbs this week, so hopefully you can see a little bit better. Um, praise God for that. Um, but I want to encourage you to take down uh, some notes and, and dig in with us. Romans chapter 9 uh, is not an easy chapter, okay? Uh, my, my thinking is it probably raised more questions than it answered last week, and so I don't know if I said it in this service or in the other one, but email me, okay? I'm serious. If you have questions as we're walking through this, I would love to, uh, listen, I, I love to talk about this stuff, right? So email me questions. Uh, I, I would love to hear from you as we journey through the book of Romans together. Um, I knew going into chapter 9, again, that it would raise some questions, uh, but I hope those questions cause you to dig into God's Word Monday through Saturday, not just Sunday morning. Uh, questions aren't a bad thing, right? Remember when my uh, youngest son was probably about four years old, he was full of questions, always asking why, what, what, you know, this question after question. And I remember one day we were driving in the car, it, it was still morning, he had probably asked about 50 questions already, and my mind just couldn't take it anymore. And, and, I, and I, I turned to him and I said, Elijah, okay, you've reached your question limit for the day. No more questions. And without skipping a beat, he responded right away. He said, so you're saying no more questions? <laughs> like, you got me, dude, you got me. But Paul's words in Romans, can I just say, they can be especially weighty. They can be especially difficult to understand. Even the apostle Peter talks about Paul's writing, 2 Peter, and listen to what he says. He, he says this, there are some things in them, referring to Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. So if you're struggling a little as we go through this, can I just say, you're in good company with the apostle Peter. The truth is, though, listen to me, when we turn to Scripture, there are things that are hard to understand, but that doesn't mean we should shy away from them. See, one of the reasons I started preaching exegetically a few years ago, meaning going line by line and chapter by chapter, is because it forces me to tackle some passages of Scripture that I might be tempted to ignore. Romans 9, 10, 11, usually we go 8 and let's just skip over those and we go to 12, right? But uh, for a lot of pastors, Romans chapter 9 is that. Hey, let's go over that. I, I shared uh, last week, it's a controversial passage that ha has caused... Uh, uh, many churches to split. It's caused uh, Christians to divide into doctrinal groups. And you heard some of my understanding last week. But in chapter 8, uh, Paul declared that God predestines individuals for salvation. And, and, and the question that arises from that is, well, what about Israel? Like if God is sovereign over the salvation of people, then we're looking around and seeing that much of Israel is not responding. And so has God's word, has God's promise failed? Of course, the answer that Paul gave was, no, not at all. And he says this, not all descended from Israel belong to Israel, right? And so Paul begins to tell us about God's sovereignty. He is sure that God is in control. Can I tell you, even in the chaos today going on in our world, God is in control. God is in control. When, when we talk about these topics, though, of sovereignty and, and free will and all this, these are weighty topics, so if I could break it down for you, here's my understanding, at least for now, okay? Constantly learning, constantly studying. But I believe this, that God is supremely sovereign. And I also believe that we are responsible for our response to him. God is sovereign. That word sovereign means he is abs has absolute authority. When we say he's sovereign, that means he has complete control. Nothing happens outside of his plan and his purpose. Nothing takes God by surprise. At the same time, I think he calls us to respond to his grace in our lives. 
Charles Spurgeon was once asked how he could reconcile God's sovereignty with man's responsibility, and his response was this. He said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. I never reconcile friends. Hear me, while there's this tension between both of these ideas, I, for one, think tension is a good thing. It's a, it's a healthy thing. And so here in Romans chapter 9, Paul is focusing on the sovereignty of God, but you'll see when we get to chapter 10 uh, over the next few weeks that he gives us a framework for our responsibility. And while Paul does a really good job of answering the questions that many of us raise, I don't think he's worried, again, I don't think he's worried about relieving the tension between these two ideas. Because the reality is you can find both of these ideas in the Bible. In his commentary on the book of Romans, John Stott quotes a man by the name of Charles Simeon. And he lived in a time when the debate over election and man's responsibility was was probably at its height. And here's here's what he said. He said, when I come to a text which speaks of election, I delight myself in the doctrine of election. When the apostles exhort me to repentance and obedience and indicate my freedom of choice and action, I give myself up to that side of the question. Again, I truly believe that God is in charge of what happens. I believe God's in charge of what happens and when it happens and how it happens and why it happens. He's even in charge of what happens after it happens, right? That's true of every event from the beginning of time. He is not the author of sin, and yet we know that even evil done in this world can serve his purposes. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we continue in chapter 9 today. And the very first thing I want you to see is that in just those verses 19 through 24, there are seven different questions that are raised, all right? Uh, Almost as many as my son raised, all right? Seven different questions. And so Paul is is raising these questions, and he, he doesn't address each one specifically, but there are a number of answers given. Look at verse 19, verse 19. He says, you will say then to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? What is the word then? You will say then. What is that word pointing to? Well, it's going back to the question about Pharaoh, right? Remember we talked last week about how Moses was sent by God to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt, right? He went and he said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said no, over and over again. But as you look at the plagues that came upon Egypt, as you look at the parting of the, the Red Sea, all of that had a purpose. It was so that God's name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. And so remember verse 18, Paul says that God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, someone might read that and say, well, Paul, if that's the case, then how are we blamed for our behavior? I mean, if we're simply playing out the roles that God preordained for us, how can God judge us for resisting his will? But what's unique about this particular passage is that like, unlike other places in Romans, Paul raises the question And he doesn't really give us an answer. In fact, he answers the question with another question, right? Look at verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? His question is basically this. Who do you think you are, right? You know, in certain situations, certain questions, that's an appropriate response. In fact, I think it would be the proper response to the objection we saw in in verse 14. Remember, the question there was, is there injustice on God's part? Now, to that question, Paul says, again, by no means, and here he simply says, who do you think you are? Now, listen to me. If Paul had simply said that God's election is based on whom he foresees would repent and believe, then this charge of injustice would be dealt with. You you see, there are those that will argue, the one side will argue that, well, Paul teaches that God elects people based on his foreknowing who will choose him. 
They would say, well, he looks down the corridors of time and he determines who's going to believe and he elects people based on that foreknowledge. But if that's what Paul was teaching, then the question in verse 14 regarding his injustice would never be raised. These questions in verse 19 would never be raised. And so these questions are really evidence that Paul teaches that God is sovereign in his election of individuals and that it has absolutely nothing to do with man. Again, he has mercy on whomever he has mercy, and he hardens whomever he hardens. Paul is raising this question himself because he knows that it's going to be asked based on what he's teaching. And his issue is, I don't think it's so much with the question as with the attitude behind those questions. And so he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That phrase there, it literally means to answer to one's face or to be against someone. And so Paul is taking the person that would ask that question, he's putting them in the right, rightful place. You see, I don't believe it's wrong to ask questions of God, but I also think that you and I should never presume to correct God, right? That's what happens when we put ourselves above God. When we put ourselves above God's word, we say, well, God's word certainly can't say that because that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, that's what happens when we put ourselves above God and his word. In the book of Job, Job is put in his place. Job chapter 40, verse 2, the Lord says to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. And I love Job's response. There in verses 4 and 5, he says, you know what? He, all of a sudden, he realized what he was doing. He says, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I'm, I will proceed no further. He realized, i got to step back, right? Who am I to question God? Like I said last week, the challenge when we come to a passage like Romans 9 is that we can ask the question, well, how can this be before we ask the question, what does the word of God say? And here's the truth. When God declares his will, sometimes you and I just need to be still. I, I know that's hard to do, right? Because we always want to have the last word. Even when we're arguing with God, we want to have the last word, right? But Paul begins to pull together all these passages. I love this at the end of chapter 9. All these passages from the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And he wants to show us that God, as our creator, has absolute rights of ownership over our lives. The creator can do whatever he wants with what he's created. Continuing there in verse 30, you'll get the question. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Now, it's very clear this question is asked with sarcasm. It's, it's meant to be sarcastic because he describes the absurdity of a piece of pottery complaining to the potter, right? And he says this, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In the analogy, God is the potter and you and I are the clay. And the clay has no right to complain. It has no right to talk back to the creator. God, as the potter, can, can take and make something very beautiful out of the same lump of clay that he makes something common and ordinary. And, and really the point is that the creator can do whatever he wants with what he has created. Listen to me, church. In order to fully understand all that God is doing, we would have to be equal with the God who made us. Like I said last week, don't call God unjust unless you know all that God knows, right? And, and the reality is we are no more equal to God than a clay pot is equal to the potter that made it. Genesis 2-7 tells us God literally formed us from the dust of the ground, right? But here's the reality. We are designed with a purpose. 
You see, Paul's readers would have known that this image of the potter and the clay, it referred to God and Israel in the Old Testament. And so if we remember the larger context here, especially chapter nine, Paul is speaking about the nation of Israel. He's speaking about their failure to accept Jesus as the Messiah. When we talk about the same lump of clay, that is, we could say it is humanity as a whole, right? And if God wants to only save a remnant from Israel and he wants to throw in a bunch of Gentile pottery, doesn't he have the right to do that? And so when we talk about the doctrine of election and reprobation, what we mean is that God elects some for salvation while he passes over others. And our question should not be, hear me, our question should not be, how dare God save some and not others? How could he do that? Our question should be, why in the world would he save me? Right? Why in the world would he show mercy to me? Why in the world would he save any one of us? And, and the only reason we don't ask that question is because we think way too highly of ourselves. We think, well, in some way, I must be deserving of salvation. I think that's what Paul asked that question. Who do you think you are? And you can read this text and you can say, well, what about free will? I say, what about it? The reason we focus so much on free will when chapter nine doesn't even talk about it is because, again, we think way too highly of ourselves. But we also think this, well, if we just share this passage the, the way that it seems to, 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 Paul seems to be writing it, well, I don't want God to look like he's a meanie, you know, I gotta, I gotta protect him, right? And so we can go around in circles trying to defend God because we want God to look good to everyone, even those who deny him and deny his word. Hear me, Paul is not worried about defending God, <laughs> And so he says it straight. He says, who do you think you are? But we don't want to do that because we don't want people to, to think, well, uh, bad things about God. <laughs> they want to be satisfied with that answer. And so let me come up with some other answer. And the Lord knows that we live for the approval of others. And so we can never say that because if we say that God chooses some and passes over others simply because of his own sovereign choice, then the individual that I'm talking to might harden their heart and God might not be able to save them. You see how crazy that is? Hear me. If you're talking about God's sovereign election and salvation, then you can't say you're afraid that you might somehow offend somebody and because of that, God won't sovereignly save them. Are you with me today, right? It doesn't work. And so the problem the church has with the doctrine of election sometimes is not that, that chapter nine is unclear. The, the problem is not that the teaching of Paul is unclear. The problem is this, it's not what we would do. That's our problem, right? And that's why Paul goes right to the root of the source and he says, well, who do you think you are? You are a man, he's the God of the universe. You are a clay pot, he's the potter. You are created, he's your creator. You're ever-changing, he is immutable. You're frail and weak, he's omnipotent. You are sinful, he's holy. Remember, God created you, you did not create him. And so before you begin questioning God and bringing your charges against God because of something that doesn't sit right with you, know this, that God created you. That means that you exist for his purpose. It's not the other way around. You exist for God's purposes. He doesn't exist for yours. You don't even exist for your own purposes. You don't get to determine the purposes for which you were created. God has determined the purpose for your existence. And what scripture will tell us over and over again is that you and I, all of us, we exist for the glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. 
And what that means is that whatever God, however God chooses to glorify himself in and with and through your life, that's ultimately up to him, not you. What you owe him is your worship. What you owe him is your obedience. You see, nothing else makes sense from the perspective of a creature relating to his creator. He has all the rights and the authority over us. He is the owner and we are owned. The truth is, we're so prone, though, to forget this creator-creation distinction. As a parent, I can't help but when I read this to think about parenting, right? Any of you parents out there ever have a child who struggles with their role in the the parent-child distinction, right? We were talking about this the other day. My my daughter was the epitome of a strong-willed child, right? And so she always thought she knew what was right, right? Even at five years old, I know what's right, right? And so we can struggle like that, right, with our children. And because of that, you, sometimes you have a five-year-old who thinks they know better to do than you in a certain situation, right? And therefore, they're defiant, they're resistant, they're insisting that they're right even when they're wrong. Now, think about that for a moment. If that's the difference that exists between you and your five-year-old child, then imagine the distance between yourself and a God who is timeless, a God who is eternal, a God whose wisdom is infinite. He knows all kinds of things that you have no clue about. He knows all of what you don't know, and yet we're prone to forget that. We're prone to judge his ways. And so I just want to encourage you, be very careful when you wrestle with these ideas of God's sovereignty and your own free will, not to play the part of God and to think that you know how he should act. Be careful not to say or even to think that, that your way could be better than his, that, that my plan is better than his plan. Really, that's the essence of sin, isn't it? Sin says to God, my ways are better than your ways. Church, don't go there, okay? Because our hearts are nowhere near good enough to measure the goodness of God. Our minds are nowhere near capable enough to handle the wisdom of God. And so there, there is freedom in reading this text and just allowing it, it to be what it is, right? There is freedom in understanding this doctrine of election rightly. And so Paul goes on there in verse 22. Look at what he does. He wants to show us that God often delays punishment in, in order to show mercy to others. Look what verse 22 says. He says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience. How many of you know our God is a patient God? He's endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for what? For glory. Now notice Paul describes two groups of people here. Two categories, and, and you have to say everyone falls into one of these two categories, if you will. You see them? There's vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Vessels of wrath. Remember, in the very first chapter of Romans, verse 18, we were told that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. I said it before, but I'll say it again. We don't like to talk about the wrath of God, but we need to because the Bible does, okay? But don't miss what Paul is saying here, that God endured with much patience vessels of wrath. Uh, Again, our God is a patient God. Sometimes we can look at situations that are going on in the world and we just want God to strike somebody down, right? Just bring the thunder down, bring the lightning down, right? We, We want judgment immediately. But these verses tell us that there is a divine delay in God's judgment in order that people will repent 
and they'll receive salvation. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Are you grateful he's patient toward you? I'm thankful for his patience in my life. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Listen, because of our sin, we all deserve the wrath of God. But because of the grace of God, there is a way out. Verse 22, though, I, I mean, at face value, it's, it's a tough verse, isn't it? Because Paul says of these vessels of wrath, he says they are prepared for destruction. Now, I, I think it's helpful to understand the grammar here, okay? The grammar there is in the passive voice. And you say, well, what does that mean, Pastor? Well, it really means this, that people prepare themselves for destruction because of their sins. So it's not that God makes people sinful, but rather that he, he leaves them in their sin unless they repent and unless they receive Jesus. And so if someone resists and rejects God, they end up preparing themselves for their own destruction. At the same time, we have to realize that if during this time of divine delay there is repentance, then an individual goes from an object of wrath to an object of mercy. Draws my attention to Ezekiel. 18 verse 32 where God says this for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone declares the Lord God so turn and live very simple message it's a message of repentance turn and live turn away from sin turn to Christ and live but here's what you need to know today whether vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy God gets the glory either way like God even used Israel's unbelief to further his purposes among the Gentiles. And because he is sovereign, he uses all circumstances to promote his glory and his honor. And so when you look at verse 23, it describes, again, vessels of mercy now. You need to know the grammar's different, okay? Unlike vessels of wrath that prepare themselves for destruction, vessels of mercy don't prepare themselves for glory. No, we are prepared in advance for glory by God. Now, these are some strong distinctions between these groups, and it ought to make us ask, if there's only two groups, which group do I find myself in today? Because you're either a vessel or an object of wrath prepared for destruction, or you are a vessel of mercy that God has prepared in advance for glory. Because here's the reality. Not everyone is going to heaven. A pastor by the name of Rob Bell wrote a book a few years ago called Love Wins, and really his argument was, well, you know what, in the end, a, a loving God could never send anyone to hell for eternity. But what Paul has already been telling us is that if we are left to ourselves, we would all go to hell, right? None of us in this room deserve heaven, and so if we go to heaven, it's only because someone else has paid the price for us. You see, mercy involves accepting something that you don't deserve. And God in his mercy is delaying judgment so that many will repent and receive Christ. But I gotta say this today, the delay won't last forever. He won't wait forever. And so we're told here that God designs with a purpose. We're told that he delays his judgment, but why does he do that again? He does that in order to show mercy. Tells us he does this among the Jews and the Gentiles, right? Even those whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. When we look at the Jewish people and the nation of Israel, we know that God chose one group of people to reveal himself to and to begin the work of redemption there. He chose a place, the country of Israel, right? But from the very beginning, God's heart has always been for the chosen people, his chosen people, to be a light to the Gentiles. 
It's still his plan for his church today to be a light to those who need the light of Jesus Christ. But, but from the very beginning, they, they disobeyed his commands. And, and instead, they allowed spiritual indifference to enter their lives. And they really made two mistakes, you could say. Number one, they, they thought that they were in just because they were born Jewish, right? Um, um, Father Abraham, I'm, I'm in, I'm good, right? But secondly, they did not take God's word to the nations, Today, there are about 16 million Jews in the world out of a population of about 8 billion people. They make up about 0.2% of the world's population. And, and here's the thing. If God had said from the very beginning, I'm only going to save the Jews, he would still be a fair God because, again, none of us deserve mercy. But that's not what he did. He opened the door of salvation to the Gentiles. How many of you are thankful for that today, right? It, the door was open to us. We're going to go into that in chapter 11, right? But, but the offer went to the Jews first. That's why, I hope you know this, Jesus was Jewish, okay? You know that, right? We, we know that in heaven there, there will be Jews and Gentiles, but we also know this, not every Jew goes to heaven and not every Gentile goes to heaven. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is going to quote two Old Testament prophets, he wants to build this case, if you will, for the mercy of God. And so first he quotes the prophet Hosea there in verses 25 and 26. He says, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Wow. Why is Paul quoting Hosea to tell us that God receives Gentiles into his family? Well, he does this to show us this is not a new idea. It's not a new idea in the plan of God. But I also want you to see here that God is at work. Remember, salvation is all a work of God. Look at the phrase, I will call, right? They will be called. Gentiles, pagans, are going to be called sons of the living God. At the same time, God redeems a remnant from Israel. And so Paul is not only saying there are Gentiles who will become full members of God's family, but he's also saying that, yes, indeed, there are Jews who will be left out. And so he quotes the prophet Isaiah. Look there in verse 27 through 29. He says this, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Here's what he says. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What do we know about Sodom and Gomorrah? They were completely destroyed because of God's judgment. And so this quote from Isaiah shows us that as bad as Judah's state was, it certainly could have been much worse, right? It was only because of the mercy of God that they survived at all because Sodom and Gomorrah didn't even have a small remnant to carry on. And so even in the midst of God's judgment, he shows mercy to Judah. Because here's the reality, as long as a remnant survives, there is hope of restoration, as long as a remnant survives, there is hope of restoration. I believe that for our nation today. As long as a remnant survives, there is hope of restoration. God always works with a remnant. At the same time, Paul's reminding those with a Jewish background, hey, just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're automatically in. 
No, you need to repent in order to be a part of the remnant. The reality, again, is God always worked through a remnant. And, and so because the whole nation of Israel has not entered into the blessing, it does not mean in any way that the promise of God has failed. Now look at verse 30. Another question. He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. <laughs> that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, that's what they're hoping, this law is going to make us righteous, did not succeed in reaching that law. And so as Paul's, again, looking at the state of the Jewish people, from a man's perspective, he's saying, what's going on? Well, by all appearances, the Gentiles found righteousness even though they didn't seem to be really looking for it. Meanwhile, Israel, who seemed to work for the righteousness of God, with everything they had in them, they didn't find it. They, they pursued the law, but didn't find righteousness. So what happened? Why did the unlikely Gentiles find righteousness when the likely Jews didn't? That's the question Paul asks and answers in verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Let me say that again. They did not pursue that righteousness by faith but as if it were based on works. So the Jews pursued the law of righteousness while the Gentiles pursued the righteousness of faith. The, the Gentiles came to God through faith and they received his righteousness while many of the Jews who seemed to be cast off, they, they tried to justify themselves before God by performing good works. And, and so the reason why Israel seems cast off from God's righteousness is because they did not seek it by faith. He says there, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of what? Offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let me say it again. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Who's that talking about? Jesus, nine times out of ten. That's the right answer in church, right? Jesus. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so remember the question that Paul's addressing from the very beginning of this chapter, right? Why did so many of the Jews who, who are trying so hard to please God miss the fact that Jesus is their Messiah? Well, it's because they were trying to be good enough for God by keeping the law rather than by coming to God by faith. They weren't trusting him to do what they could not do. And so Paul combines all these passages from Isaiah to really explain what happened, all right? Uh, of course, we, we know this, that Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone, amen? He's the chief cornerstone of the kingdom of God. And Isaiah had predicted that he would be a stumbling block to many who would reject him. We know that Jesus, he came from the right lineage, but we also know he did not act and speak the way that many were expecting him to speak, right? In his ministry, there were signs that were given. There were certainly prophecies that were fulfilled. The problem was he was not conforming to what people expected of him. He was here advancing a spiritual kingdom while they're seeking an earthly one. You know, Jesus taught and he showed by his example, the example of his life, that service and humility are the way of greatness, but that's not what they were looking for. That's not the message they wanted to hear. Jesus came to die for our sins. The problem is there are many who would much rather try to earn salvation in a way that they can be proud of. 
The Apostle Peter is going to quote the same verse from Isaiah in his letter. And you know what? He pulls out the same conclusion. He says they stumble because they disobey the word, which is also what they were destined to do. The same thing happens. Can I just say this today? In every false religion, it, it is only Christianity that teaches us that we need to come to a place where we humbly accept that we can do nothing in our own strength to make ourselves righteous. That was Jesus' teaching in the greatest sermon ever preached, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? And so I just want to encourage you, church, to remember as we go through this passage that, that salvation is a gift, not a reward. It's a gift, not a reward. In other words, you did not earn it. All throughout the book of Romans, Paul has said again and again that you're fallen, that you're broken, that you're sinful, that you and I were alienated from God, but the good news of the gospel is that he has saved you and he has adopted you. The good news of the gospel is that now he's called you his own. But here's what I need to say as we come to a close today. Even as we understand God's sovereignty, I also believe this, that understanding of God's sovereignty should not diminish our own responsibility. We've seen through Romans chapter 9 that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all things. And at the same time, I believe this, we are accountable to him. Remember the objection here is saying, well, if man can't stop God's will, then man's not responsible for his own sin. But scripture interprets scripture, right? And so what does scripture say over and over again? It says the exact opposite. Man is responsible for his sin talked last week about, again, Pharaoh and Moses. Pharaoh is is a great example of this. Yes, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but but you also need to understand Pharaoh hardened his heart as well. (laughs) And, And Pharaoh's held accountable to God for his sinful disobedience the same way we see it all over Scripture. And so it would be wrong of us to move on from chapter 9 into chapter 10 and just think, you know what, we're all just robots and we're, we're, we're programmed a certain way. It's, you know, divine fatalism. It would be wrong to think that you and I have no decision-making capabilities whatsoever and so therefore we're not responsible. Can I just say, this is not what Scripture teaches. We're going to see more of that as we get into chapter 10. No, Scripture teaches that if you sin you will experience the consequences of that sin. And in your sin, you cannot point your finger at God and say, well, he made me do this. He's sovereign. He he made me this way, and so therefore he's accountable. No, he's sovereign. At the same time, you are accountable. Well, how do we handle both of those things, right? We want to go one way or the other. Which is it, right? When you look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, I remember when, when the Passion of Christ, when that movie came out, there was this big debate over who was responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. Was it the Jews or, or was it the Romans, right? And I say, yes, both. The religious leaders and the political leaders of that time were responsible for the death of Jesus. They were responsible, but at the same time, God was completely sovereign over it. God was sovereign over everything that took place leading up to the cross. He was sovereign over everything that took place at the cross, right? Now, I realize that's a bit of a mystery. It's hard to understand, but it's not a contradiction. I mean, you may say, well, how can man be responsible and God be sovereign at the same time? Remember a few years back, my wife and I and our youngest son, we were taking a trip to the UK. We're going to go meet our older children who were already over there for missions conference and I found such a good deal on airfare that I decided to fly west before we went east. 
And uh, we got our tickets and we, we flew out to Minneapolis. In retrospect, not a good idea. We got to Minneapolis. We're waiting for this flight on Virgin Atlantic and the flight is delayed and it's delayed and it's delayed and then it's canceled. And then we find out we're not leaving for a whole 24 hours. We're going to miss a whole day in the UK. If you know my wife, that's a big deal, okay? But finally, you know, they, they put us up in a hotel they, overnight. We got back. Next day, we got on the flight. We made it out to UK. We had a tremendous trip. But here's what I know. I believe that God was sovereign over everything that took place. That flight being canceled, it took me by surprise. It didn't take him by surprise. He knew exactly the day we would arrive. He knew everything that would happen during that trip. God was sovereign. But let me ask you this. Does that mean Virgin Atlantic was not responsible? Absolutely not. They were so responsible, right? They were the ones that were supposed to get us over there, right? They knew they were responsible. That's why they gave us a hotel, right? I hold them completely responsible. And here's my point. It's this. That every one of us in this room is responsible for how we respond to Christ. That's what Paul's saying at the end of Romans chapter 9. That the Jews, here's what they need to do. They need to trust in Christ by faith. It's the same for every one of us. One day, every single one of us in this room, we will stand before God. And you, hear me, yes, you will be accountable for what you did with Jesus Christ. And and you won't be able to say in that moment at at judgment, well, God, you were sovereign and therefore I wasn't responsible. Hear me, that's not going to fly. You will be responsible on that day for whether you received Christ or you rejected him. Listen, I, I know this chapter. Listen, it can bring up a lot more questions than answers. But the whole point that we see here is that today, if you've never believed in Jesus Christ, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you've been trying to do it by works righteousness. Say, so I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to be a better man. I'm going to be a better woman. Listen, apart from Christ, none of us can make ourselves righteous. And so we need the righteousness of Christ. I want to challenge you. What we've seen from the word of God is not that you read Romans chapter 9, you wonder, man, am I a part of the elect or not? That's not the point Paul's trying to make. Instead, he's challenging us to see that in our sin, we've rebelled against God and therefore we deserve his wrath. You and I deserve the wrath of God, and yet God sent his son in mercy to bear the wrath that we deserve on the cross so that everyone in this room that believes in the name of Jesus will be saved. We're going to see that in Romans chapter chapter 10, right? That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so the invitation is for everyone in this room this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ. The invitation is simply this, to trust Christ to receive his mercy. Salvation is a gift. It's not a reward. You can receive that gift today by faith, simply acknowledging that Jesus took the penalty for your sin, believing that he rose again and submitting your life to him. It's about repentance. It's about turning away from doing things your own way and saying, you know what, my way is better, and turning to Christ and realize that his way is the best. Would you stand with me today? And so the invitation, again, is for every person that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Just today, you can simply say, Lord, I trust you. I I receive your mercy. You can know this today, that he forgives freely, that he covers sin, that he can deal with all of your guilt and your shame. And again, salvation is not based on anything you've done. 
It's not based on anything you could do. It is simply based on his mercy. And so I plead with you today, trust his mercy. And when you do that, and for everyone in in the room that, that has already done that, that's already placed their faith in Christ, understand the only way that you could have possibly called on God is if he called on you. And what that means is that your salvation is based solely on the mercy of God. And so if you're a believer today, I just want to encourage you to rejoice in his mercy. Rejoice in the reality that there was nothing in you. I know we like to think there was, but there was nothing in you to draw him to you. And yet he came running after you. And yet he was pursuing you. Malcolm Muggeridge, he's an English journalist. He put it this way. I love this. He wrote this. He said, however far and fast I've run, Still over my shoulder, I'd catch a glimpse of you on the horizon. And then I'd run faster and further than ever, thinking triumphantly, now I have escaped. But no, you were there, coming after me. There was no escape. He says, I've never wanted a God, or feared a God, or felt under any necessity to invent one. Unfortunately, I am driven to the conclusion that God wants me can't help but think there's many of you in the room that you've spent your life running away from God. But you're here today because he pursued you. You're not here today because somebody invited you. Oh, you're here today because he's pursuing you. And when you understand that, why not submit to his mercy? Don't keep running. Submit to his mercy today. Receive that mercy in your life. And when you receive that mercy, here's what we know as believers. We know this, that he who began a good work, he's faithful to complete it. We can know this, that there is absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can know that all things, even the worst things, even those things that come across your path that you wish you never saw, they will work together for good in your life. You can know that God, the God who is faithful to call you is faithful to his promises. And listen, when you get a hold of that, you will rejoice in that mercy. You'll rejoice in that mercy, but you'll also want to proclaim that mercy to those around you. Said it last week at the close of the service that the book of Revelation gives us this wonderful picture of people from every nation and, and tongue and tribe and they're gathered around the throne, worshiping the Lord on, seated on the throne. Can I just say, that's not a wishful picture. That's not a, oh, I hope this happens. No, it, it is a vision of what is going to happen because God is going to make it happen. He's going to call people from every nation and tongue and tribe, even the unreached today that don't have the scripture, he's working amongst them to call them to himself. And so I believe Listen, when we understand the mercy of God in our own lives, we will make it our mission to make that mercy known to others. See, there are some that wrongly think this doctrine of election keeps us from evangelism because you'll say, "Ah, I don't know who's elect and who's not. I say that's exactly why we should preach the gospel every opportunity we have. Every time we get the opportunity, we should preach the gospel. That's why we should preach the gospel everywhere we go because we know this, that as we give that external call, we have the confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And as we proclaim that external call, the Holy Spirit will internally and effectually call people to himself. And because of that, this gospel of Jesus Christ 
is something that you and I do not need to be ashamed of because it is certainly the power of God to salvation for everyone. Hear me, everyone who believes. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the confidence that we can have in your word, Lord God. And we thank you today for your mercy extended to us. Lord, we rejoice in that mercy. Lord, when we understand that there was nothing in us that would warrant you choosing us, calling us out. Lord God, it's simply by your mercy. Lord, we receive that mercy and we rejoice in that mercy. Lord, I pray even right now that you place someone on our hearts and our minds. Holy Spirit, someone who you're working on the inside. You're, you're already calling them. You're already drawing them. Lord God, help us as your people this week to open our mouths and to declare the mercy of God. Lord God, use us. We recognize today you've created us for a purpose that you prepared it beforehand that we should walk in. Lord, help us to walk in that this week. God, help us to rejoice in your mercy. Hallelujah. Come on, church, just begin to lift your voice. Begin to thank him. If you receive that mercy today, whether you received it today for the first time or whether you've been living in it, thank him. Come on, begin to lift your voice and thank him for his mercy in your life. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord.